Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, Dr. Carl Kruzelnicki AM, uh, otherwise known as Dr. Carl to many people. Um, Carl Kruzelnicki is an Australian science uh, communicator and popularizer with uh, a variety of degrees in the field of science. Uh, he's also known as an author and a very prolific one and as a science commentator on Australian radio and television. Um, Carl is the Julius Sumner Miller Fellow in the Science Foundation for Physics at the School of Physics, University of Sydney. And in 2019, Carl was awarded the UNESCO Kalinga Prize for the popularisation of science, uh, of which previous recipients include Margaret Mead, David Attenborough, Bertrand Russell and David Suzuki. I could go on forever, but we want to chat to Carl. Welcome to Viewpoints, uh, Dr Carl Krizelnicki. Look, thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured. Thank you. It's a it's a great pleasure to have you on. Um, I noticed that you're also the uh, Julius Sumner Miller Fellow at the University of Sydney, and as a school principal and someone who studied physics and chem and science and maths uh, all through secondary school, Carl, I was very influenced by Julius Sumner Miller in the sixties, where uh, he uh, he was in a way your predecessor. Uh, why is it so? We love the way he popularised science. Uh, um, yourself, uh, was he in some way any inspiration in some of the work for you? He was very impressive in his understanding of uh, basic physics and science, and also in how he could explain it in a logical order so the average person could understand it. Mind you, he was a little bit scary. <laughs> You're probably right because, uh, as I recall it, as a as a teenager, there uh, there was a sort of a severeness about him. Of course, you well, everyone's a different sort of personality. Your approach to popularising science, uh, and uh, if ever we needed uh, science to be taken seriously and the young people embrace it, uh, I would argue this is the time. Your approach, Carl. How do you go about it? Um, well, firstly, I start with having a very short attention span and liking shiny things. So if I see something weird and wonderful and interesting, I go looking at it, figuring that the average person will like it. So, for example, I've just been this week looking at how some people have a sixth finger that is fully functional and trying to answer the mystery of why you can go to bed hungry but wake up not hungry at all. So the first part is trying to find the topic and that just pops up by itself. The second part relies on trying to turn it into a story. Now, I'm very lucky because I grew up in a time when the Australian government saw education as a worthwhile investment in the future. It doesn't see that anymore. And so therefore, I had 16 years of university education. So I've got a broad education in physics and mathematics and in engineering. When I designed and built a machine for Fred Hollows to pick up electrical signals off the human retina to diagnose certain types of eye disease, such as retinitis pigmentosa. And then in addition to the degree in engineering, I also have degrees in medicine and surgery and then several non-degree years of study just to round me off um, in computer science, astrophysics, electrical engineering and philosophy. The next part of the equation is then to realise that this is just the background. Then you need to keep up to date. So I read my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year, a pile about a metre thick every month. And then finally, I finish off with um, turning into the stories. Because if you don't actually go to the trouble 
of turning it into a story, the information just runs around in your head and it gets diluted. And so I can give an explanation in two minutes that took me 10 or 20 hours to formulate. And that way, that explanation is locked into my brain. It's a good explanation. Of course, um, uh, Julius Sumner Miller, as you as you said, in his own way, was was a bit scary. Part of that could have also been uh, he was just too daunting. Um, that sounds so simple, concise, and uh, very explicit. But to a lot of people, um, to emulate your approach, Carl, would be beyond them, they would think. Well, the, the story is something that the human brain is wired up to accept, you know, the concept of a story, because it's part of uh, compensating for the fact that we humans are lousy fighting animals with pathetic teeth and claws and skin and uh, athletic abilities, but in a group, we're very strong. And so language evolved and then uh, stories to keep us together in groups. And I'll give you an example of how our brains are wired up to accept a story easily. Option one, suppose I give you uh, a thousand words in alphabetical order and I ask you to give them back to me. You can't. Um, nobody can. Oh, okay, a few crazy people could, but that's about it. Excellent. Secondly, I give you the, the same thousand words in a story, and here we go. So um, here comes the story. So I got woken up a few weeks ago early in the morning um, by banging on the door, and I went down, who should be there but Kim Kardashian, who said, hi, Carl, um, love your work. Look, um, can't bring your wife, and I've got a very special surprise for you. And I said, okay, so woke Mary up. We, she said, bring your passports. So we got our passports, and she took us to the airport and then took us on a, her plane, a Gulfstream 5, um, and we flew all the way to Washington, D.C., where we end up having a nude mud bath with several world leaders, including Donald Trump. And it turns out we were given the secret information that all of the world leaders are actually shape-changing reptiles from the planet Zog. Okay, that's the end of the story. Now, you can tell that story back to me, and in that course of that, tell me those thousand words. But if I ask you to tell me the words by themselves without the context of a story, you could not. So that's what I mean about how the human brain is wired up to accept and to give uh, and relate stories. And so the story is the essential part of being able to remember what you have learned. Yes, absolutely true. And it's interesting, um, and I was chatting with some of uh, my colleagues just the other day, Carl, uh, maths and science are subject areas that we seem to have trouble in our profession. Firstly, uh, getting people to to, that have the passion and the qualifications to teach it. And secondly, lots of students shy away from Do we get the wrong narrative or do we not even bother with it to get them engaged? Our education system is fundamentally flawed in Australia. So Australia is the only country in the world where the federal government gives more money to private schools than it does to government schools. And when you think about it, private schools are just private companies that happen to be selling education instead of plastic buckets. Um, and for some reason, they get more money than the government schools. Secondly, we don't respect the teachers in that we don't pay them enough. Now, let me just give a proviso here. If you give a cat $100, you don't get a lion. You just got a cat with $100. So to some degree with the teachers, we need to follow the Scandinavian model, which is that they have to be higher qualified. So they, each teacher has a master's degree in education 
as well as a master's degree in the field that they are teaching. And then you pay them heaps because that investment is huge. And that's not just for high school students, but primary school students. All of the psychological studies around the world say that primary school is incredibly important for the future education of the kids. And yet in Australia, they're almost denigrated to the extent of being thought of as overpaid childminders. And when we, in fact, do set up childminding centres, those people are not properly, overwhelmingly not qualified. So we don't see education as an investment in the future. And then the specific case of people turning away from the sciences is just a byproduct of that. Couldn't have put that better. Carlin has a school principal of a public uh, a public primary school. Um, it's such a shame that I don't hear those sort of words uh, in our public discourse. And I think it explains a lot of why we have the issues that we do. We need to take a short break. When we come back, I want to start talking about your Surfing Safari Through Science, which has just been published uh, from ABC Books and is available $35. Can you hold the line, Carl? Standing by, ready to rock. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack, and we're in a discussion with Dr. Carl Krizelnicki, surfing safari through science with pop-up holograms. It's uh, his latest book. It's published by ABC Books, and it's available for $35. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Carl. Thank you very much, Dr. Henry. <laughs> now, your book, um, the structure and layout of the book is so user-friendly. Uh, in, in, in writing your books, and we spoke about this before the break, Carl, um, captivating people's attention with relatively small attention spans, the structure of the book, you might like to explain that because it's very appealing. Well, um, it's got colour, it's got pictures, it's got words, and even better, it's got holograms. A little bit like Princess Leia in Star Wars 2, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are my only salvation, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. So there's little holograms, or a couple of dozen of them, scattered through the book, mainly on the title pages, but there's a few secret ones as well. And what you do is you download the mostly named Dr. Carl app, and then uh, you put it onto your phone, it's free. Um, and then you aim your camera on your phone at the book and blow me down, hologram of me pops up. So I do a story about how dead fish can swim. That is correct. A fish that is dead can keep on swimming, providing it's got a current of water coming at it. And in the last century when we did whaling, uh, the ancient whalers would talk about how a dead whale would keep on swimming into an oncoming sea for a day or two at speeds up to one knot. And so I give the explanation about it. And then when you aim your phone at the book, up pops a little hologram of me talking about it. And then underneath my feet are some buttons. And when you press on one of those buttons with your finger on the computer screen, suddenly there it is hovering in space in front of you, a video of a dead fish swimming. Oh, my God. There you are. There's a video. Absolutely, and there's 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 no books around hard uh, like that. I mean, it's uh, what what got you on the idea of holograms in your books? Well, there are some things that really need 
pictures and movies. So luckily in this book, I've got pictures that are in colour. But sometimes if you want to talk about a dead fish swimming, you want to see the movie. And that's the only way I could bring it to people by showing the movie. So I had to go down that hologram pathway. Absolutely. Now, the book is full of so many things. I love a cup of coffee. Um, I, 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 I was fascinated that as I was reading through your stories about uh, coffee and how you improve it, you talked about the butterfly effect on coffee. I never quite associated with uh, coffee butterflies except perhaps flying by as I drank it. Can you explain that one to, to our listeners, uh, Carl? We've had coffee for about six centuries, and it turns out we've been making it the wrong way all that time. And you know that we've been making it the wrong way when you hear the baristas talking. And they go off, the baristas, to their international competitions, and there's four judges, and they don't want to have to share one cup. And so the baristas make four cups, supposedly identical, and yet... No matter how hard they try, they can never get them identical. And we've wondered about this for a long time. And it took five years of research with some people called computational chemists. I had no idea what that was. They're chemists who do their work not with um, laboratories but with computers. And even a barista from Melbourne, so almost certainly they were wearing black. And they finally worked out the secret. Now, what you would expect when you're making a cup of coffee and you've got your finely ground coffee in the coffee basket on the espresso machine, what you would expect would be that the water, the hot water under pressure, would come down evenly and fairly it would visit each grain of coffee, extract some of the 2,000 plus chemicals in it, the good chemicals, and then move on and finally deliver some uh, thick black liquid at the bottom with a bit of crema, which is absolutely delicious. That is not what happens. What happens is because of the butterfly effect, you get randomness. Literally, the butterfly effect means that um, you have a large sensitivity to a small change in the initial conditions. And so that's a complicated thing, so I'll explain it with an example. So in the Amazon area, on the southern side of the equator, you have the Amazon forest and you have a butterfly. And the butterfly decides that it will flap its wings for five seconds. Now, that's not much of an effect, but it ripples through the system, being amplified, until finally, four weeks later, on the other side of the equator, a huge um, tornado or, or, or cyclone or hurricane that is barreling down on America suddenly changes course at the last minute and goes out to sea harmlessly because that butterfly did flap its wings for one second rather than did not. That is a so-called butterfly effect. And in the same way, you're seeing this sort of chaos effect happening where in the coffee, instead of the coffee beans, the coffee grains all staying different and apart from each other, they clump. They form a little clumps like about a centimetre across and they bear like a little solid ball of clay and the water cannot penetrate. Instead, the water goes around the outside of this little ball of what's like clay and extracts far too much coffee essence from the grains of coffee lining the channel the good stuff and the bad stuff, and so you end up with this difference in the coffee every time you make it. It turns out that the cure is remarkably simple. Number one, use less coffee. Well, straight, that's good. That means you, you it's cheaper. Number two, uh, use slightly less pressure, but you still want it very hot. And number three, don't grind it as fine. And I thought, hang on, the more you grind it finely, 
the bigger the surface area, so you're going to get more coffee goodness. And they're saying, no, do not do that. And I've tried it and blow me down. I'm now getting far more consistency with my cups of coffee from one to the next. Absolutely interesting. One more I'd like to, to, to tackle, and it's it's a very contemporary one. Um, plague by history, past plagues and coronavirus, and uh, that whole field is 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 rich for discussion on many levels. But from your from the perspective that you approach it in your book, uh, Carl. Well, on one hand, we're fairly lucky, if you can say lucky, in that this virus has a relatively low death rate. In the 1830s in France, when the cholera epidemic came through, instead of having a death and disability rate of about 1%, half a percent, it had a death rate of 85%. And surprisingly, people who worked with copper, like in making the famous Bordeaux mixture to stop the fungus attacking the vines, they seem to have some extra resistance. So I've written a story firstly about plagues and epidemics in the past and comparing it to the coronavirus and secondly how copper can help keep you alive it turns out that the virus that causes the coronavirus which goes by the name of SARS-CoV-2 that virus will survive for about two days on stainless steel one day on cardboard and wait for it only four hours on copper in fact the copper kills it not because you've done electricity to the copper or added special chemicals to it just the naked copper by itself and so the the researchers looked at some copper handrails in new york in grand central terminal which had been in use for a century firstly these handrails made out of copper were still good and strong and robust after a secondary after a century but secondly they actually still killed the virus you put the virus on these copper just just the naked copper and blow me down after four hours the virus has been broken up so this tells us that this is something we should have done a long time ago and what we should do is make it the rule that in all public places all the metal surfaces that people touch are copper the push plates on doors, uh, on elevators, and on public transport, the handrails and so forth. If we use copper, that will reduce the diseases in the society because it doesn't just attack attack, uh, viruses, it also attacks bacteria as well. So copper, hopefully, if we've got any sense, will become widely used in our society as a material on surfaces that people touch. Wonderful. Carl, time has got away from us. Um, the book is full of uh, so many different fascinating things and they're, they're so accessible. As an educator, I, I, I can't fault it. It's, 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 it's wonderful. I'd like to finish by going back to the beginning. We'll do things back the front. Uh, the book is framed in your introduction, really. The year 2020 has reminded us that science is a bit like a wave. Um, you might like to explain that metaphor. <laughs> well, science is not a bunch of facts. That is an encyclopedia. Rather, science is an active dynamic process, changing all the time, of trying to understand the world around you. So science, a wave, love, flame, what do they all have in common? You can't just put it in a bottle and look at it and have it stay there. No, because 
a wave is real, like love and a flame, but it's constantly dynamic and being manufactured all the time. And so too is science. So with this whole SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 virus thingy, in the early days, I actually made a mistake because I was quoting the science and the science was a bit suboptimal to put it delicately. So we had not really had a worldwide pandemic affecting the wealthy countries at the same time as we had modern science. So we didn't know much, surprisingly, about aerosols, little droplets of water coming out of your mouth and carrying disease and going from here to there and how effective different types of masks were. So in the early days, what I did was I said, well, look, the science at the moment just simply says that we don't really know all that much about how good a mask is, um, and I was sort of saying, yeah, no, look, well, I don't know. But later we got the science, and so we science changed its mind because it had more data, and I changed my mind because we had more data. And that is a strength of science, not a weakness, that it is as accurate and close to the truth as you can get. And by the way, with masks, the current knowledge is this. If you are accidentally infected and you don't know it, and you happen to go out in public, wearing a mask will massively protect people around you. Okay, what about the people around you? Well, that'll give them some protection. Not as much as you're getting for sending it out, but it'll give them some protection. So overwhelmingly, if you're going out in public and there's a virus around, or you want to make sure you get the numbers down, wear a mask. And yet, in some parts of the world, it's turned into a political issue. Like, I belong to this party, so I will wear a mask. I belong to that other political party, I won't wear a mask. And that's as ridiculous as basing your acceptance of the mathematical times tables on your politics. It's like saying, well, I, I do accept the six times tables and the eight times tables, but because I belong to such and such a political party, I do not accept the seven times tables. I do not accept that seven by two is 14. It just isn't. You're wrong because I belong to this party. And that's how ridiculous it has become. Mm, absolutely. Time's got away from us. Carl, can I firstly congratulate you on an eminent career that's still got uh, an enormous amount of energy and time and uh, an inspiration for us and uh, coming on the program and as well the, your latest book, Surfing Safari Through Science. Oh, you're too hot, kind Dr. Henry. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Dr. Carl Kruzelnicki, Surfing Safari Through Science with his pop-up holograms there, alone worth getting. That's uh, being published by ABC Books. It's out now, $35. An excellent book. I'd recommend it highly for anybody interested in just growing their knowledge about the world around them. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. Mm -hmm. 